as humans, we love to complicate things, right? We're like, well, which one? And is it resistance training? And is it hot? Is it hit? Is it spin class? Is it CrossFit? Is it, you know, it's like, just go for, if you don't know, just go for a walk. You're standing up, so you're not seated, seated at your desk. Legs are working, heart is working. You know, you're increasing your capacity for glucose disposal because the legs are, you know, kind of gobbling up all the glucose that's being, you know, out in the bloodstream for, for that utilization. It's good for the, you know, cardiometabolic. Like, just go for a 20-minute walk. You know, sometimes we have to get back to the foundational basics of, nutrition and movement first and then supplementing as the name suggests to supplement that um, with what you're welcome to better with dr stephanie i am your host dr stephanie estima this show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning self-actualization and becoming more of who you already are Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today's conversation is with Dr. Dadis Karazian. He is a Harvard Medical School trained and award-winning clinical research scientist, academic professor, and world-renowned functional medicine healthcare provider. Dr. Karazian has developed evidence-based models to treat autoimmune, neurological, and unidentified chronic diseases with non-pharmaceutical applications. And his clinical models of evidence-based medicine are used in several academic institutions, uh, thousands of healthcare providers at this point throughout the world. Um, Dr. Karazian is an associate clinical professor at the Loma Lindy University School of Medicine. Now, our conversation is very wide um, as it is deep. We start off talking about brain health, of course. This is his specialty. And we start talking about Alzheimer's. We talk about brain fog. We talk about what happens when the blood-brain barrier is compromised. We talk about some of the effects of having that compromise through um, excess or poor uh, blood sugar control, uh, stress and the neurophysiology of stress. We talk about circadian biology and uh, things like why waking up overnight is not normal, uh, even if it's to pee. And uh, we get into hormones as well. So we talk a lot about hormones in men and in women. So we start off our conversation with low T or low testosterone in men and why supplementing with exogenous testosterone might not be the solution. And I think that the answer will really um, surprise you. And he talked about how really, especially with our beautiful men, you know, this, this perfect storm of low testosterone and low dopamine, why men who are experiencing both of these things simultaneously, why it's so hard for them to initiate change and why we, um, as their partners, as their friends, as their lovers, as their mothers, sisters, um, it is really, really helpful for us to get them the help that they are seeking because they can't just seem to do it on their own. 
We talk about hormones in women, of course. We talk about uh, high testosterone in women. Of course, we talk about uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. We talk about perimenopause and menopause and the thyroid. And then we also talk about some clinical, um, we share some clinical uh, observations uh, with him, uh, with each other. So I talk to him about my observation with oxygen and oxygenation levels. Uh, We talk about glucose. We talk about novelty and stimulation. Overall, it's a super nerdy conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it and I hope that you will as well. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dadis Karazian. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Today, I am so excited to welcome you, Dr. Datis Karazian, to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I wanted to, I originally reached out to you and your team because I wanted to get you on here as one of the foremost experts in terms of uh, brain health. And specifically, I wanted to talk about a lot of inflammation. So one of the things that I, in my, in my practice and with the clients that I work with, I, I tend to work with women, as we were just, as I was saying in, in the pre-chat, lots of women listen to this podcast and in my, my private clients tend to be females as well. And I wanted to start our conversation today around the, probably the most common complaint I get, which is brain fog. Mm-hmm. And um, in my opinion, and you can correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but the term brain fog is essentially meaningless. I mean, it's sort of a descriptor. It's kind of like pain. You know, it's like, well, what does pain mean? Is it throbbing? Is it achy? Is it electric? Is it bilateral? You know, so what we know about brain fog is that there's some undercurrent of inflammation happening, but it can have many different etiologies in terms of why someone might be experiencing experiencing it. So I wanted to maybe start off our conversation and begin to unpack, and maybe you can start by defining what inflammation is and how it manifests in the brain. Sure. So um, inflammation is basically a heightened state of the immune system. It's, it's reacting to various factors, whether it's an environmental pathogen or infection, or it could even be food proteins that trigger the immune response. It could be environmental chemicals that trigger the immune response. Um, but what happens is when the immune system gets triggered, it creates these messenger proteins that then cause destruction to against the compound, like the dietary protein, maybe food sensitivity or an environmental compound, or maybe a virus or bacteria. But then those inflammatory mediators also cause some type of havoc against our own tissue. So when we get inflamed or joints hurt or tissues hurt or muscles, uh, you know, get sore. And the same thing happens in the brain. This, this inflammatory response 
turns on um, special cells in the brain called microglia, and they get activated from this inflammatory response, whether it's from a food protein or environmental triggers or from an infection. And then the brain uh, has these microglial cells release, release a bunch of mediators that actually promote brain degeneration over time. If it's chronic inflammation, um, they, these uh, inflammatory mediators uh, shut down ideal neurotransmitter function in the brain. It's associated with what they call inflammatory-based depression or the cytokine model of depression. And it really has a significant impact on also brain endurance. These inflammatory mediators uncouple um, or dysregulate mitochondria in the brain or these energy producing cells in the, uh, or powerhouses in the cells of the brain. And then people get brain fatigue. So when, the, when someone is inflamed and has systemic inflammation, and their joints still feel joint swelling and pain, but in the brain, they're going to have a brain that gets tired very quickly. They're going to be prone to depression. And they're just not going to have an efficient brain function, which, as you know, many people refer to as brain fog or coming in with the symptoms of brain fog, depression, and having no brain endurance are all signs that the brain's in play. Yeah. And like, I also hear things like, you know, it just feels like I, I have the word in my head, but I just, I can't get it. You know, like the cogs, the, you know, they're not, they're not turning the way that the way that they should. And one of the things I think most people don't recognize is that the microglia, which is sort of the, you know, the immune system of the brain, if you will, they outnumber our brain cells, right? So we often think of neurons as being the primary uh, cell in the brain, but microglia outnumber them by about 10 to one. And I always, when I'm explaining uh, you know, astrocytes or whatever it is, I will, um, the way that I uh, describe it is that they're almost like the the landscape artists of the brain, right? Like they're the ones that are mowing and keeping the grass looking clean. They're getting rid of weeds and they're getting rid of, you know, dendrites or, you know, cellular debris that may not necessarily be uh, useful or functional anymore. But there are also ways that we can overactivate uh, the microglia as well. So maybe you can, uh, and you've touched on a few of them, uh, but maybe we can touch, we can talk about what are some ways that the microglia get activated and potentially overactivated. Sure. And this is an important question because at the end of the day, how we preserve our brain is really going to determine the quality of life we have, especially as we get older. Yeah. So if we have constant brain fog for a decade after decade after decade, you know, as we get older, we're going to have early dementia. We're going to have neurogen diseases. We're going to lose volume of our brain. Our ability mm -hmm. to focus and concentrate are going to be impaired. So, you know, when you go through life, every single one of us has to constantly think about what are things that can be impacting my uh, overall brain health, my brain inflammation, unrelated to having a disease. It's just a matter of how much function you have in, in those tissues. So besides just Inflammation from diet, dietary proteins, or maybe you're sensitive to food and you keep eating it. If your joints swell, your body swells, your brain's going to have inflammation. And to environmental compounds, which you can have some degree of control with because we know things like air pollution, You know, depending on where you live, that can have an impact on brain inflammation, but that's really hard to regulate uh, based on where you live. Um, but uh, one of the biggest triggers for brain inflammation besides those things is really blood sugar spikes. And, uh, you know, if you eat and you get really tired afterwards and you eat and you crave a lot of sugar, that is really going to cause havoc on the brain. It's going to actually release, it's going to cause your pancreas to release insulin. And insulin is going to turn on these microglial cells and all these inflammatory pathways in the brain. And that's going to cause significant degeneration of the brain. And in, in a lot of researchers now are using the term type 3 diabetes, 
which is a term that's being thrown around to really, to really focus on the intention of how much of a correlation there is between insulin and blood sugar spikes and dementia de- development of mechanisms associated with Alzheimer's, which is like tau phosphorylation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, that's one of the most overlooked and common pathways is, is just these blood sugar spikes. So the other key thing is if your blood sugar drops all the time, like you get shaky, lightheaded, and irritable all the time, and that's when you decide to eat, um, when your blood sugar levels drop and you have those symptoms, your body releases insulin to try to get any amount of blood glucose you have into your cells. So that also turns on this inflammatory cascade. So roller coaster ride of just energy levels fluctuating throughout the day. If your energy levels change all the time after you eat, like maybe you feel better, maybe you feel really tired. Those are basically major mecha, major shifts that happen in our blood sugar that really promote activation of these glial cells and really can damage uh, when I well, cause inflammation and over a period of time can really start to damage neurons. And uh, if this is, if this is like if a person is listening to this and they're expecting to eat a meal and get tired or they're, and that's just like normal for them. I think that's what they should, that's what should always happen. But if they eat a meal uh, and they feel energized and they're used to waiting until they can't function and focus and get hangry to eat, they're going to really promote a neurogenerative pathway and if that's their lifestyle and they do that for 10 years 20 years you know it's it's really going to have a significant impact on their brain health yeah and hypo and so what you're referring to there is hyper and hypoglycemia which both Mm. i mean i i have a lot of women that come to me to work on you know losing weight uh, and it's usually hyper people who have been consuming excess glucose for and excess carbohydrates for ever and we sort of bring them into more of a lower uh, carbohydrate diet. We give them lots of proteins and fats, which are much more, you know, a sustainable, clean burning sort of a source of energy. What I find with hypo, I mean, with hypoglycemics, um, I often, they also have that catastrophic insulin surge in the same way that the hyperglycemics are always consuming carbs and they always have that insulin marinating, uh, you know, bathing their cells constantly. It's the same as you were saying with hypoglycemics as well. And I, I don't know if you find this uh, clinically, but I, I find that my hypoglycemics, they tend to be uh, vegetarian. Um, they don't tend to eat a lot of protein. So when I asked them, I actually had a, she was a lawyer. She came in uh, to my practice a couple of years ago and she was coming in for a concussion. Like she was having head headaches and neck pain and stuff. And when I uh, was asking her, you know, what, what happened? How did this happen? She's like, oh, well, I, I couldn't get to my emergency muffin in time. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, she just, she just doesn't eat. Like she would have maybe some, you know, like a fruit smoothie or something in the morning. And then by the end of the day, she's so spazzed because she hasn't eaten anything. And then her blood sugar drops. And then, you know, she had, you know, sort of temporarily fell and then she ended up hitting her, um, her head. Um, I don't know if you find, if that's something, a commonality that, uh, that, that you notice as well. I find my hypoglycemics tend not to eat a lot of protein and they tend to eat very low fat um, as well. So I always like to uh, have a, it's usually a sensitive conversation around, you know, potentially having some uh, meat and or more good quality sources of protein that can help with satiety and be a source of energy for them through the day. Is that something that you notice or... Or yeah, not. I mean, similar. I think a lot of hypoglycemics, are, hypoglycemics typically aren't the ones that eat bad diets. They're not the McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, fast food no. people. Right. They usually have a healthy diet. They just uh, will do things like 
have uh, a smoothie for a meal or a gluten-free muffin and tea with honey right, right, as a meal. Right. Um, so they, they, that's, that's, I think I see a similar, um, I guess, personality of a lot of people end up being hypoglycemics. Mm-hmm. So they also go too long without eating or they just have, they just don't have enough substantial fat or protein to maintain their blood sugar throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And they're too high in sugar. I mean, technically, if they were vegetarian and were eating a healthy vegetarian diet with lots of vegetables, I mean, vegetables are going to have plenty of fiber and they're going to be able to maintain the protein levels if they practice uh, vegetarian properly. Right. So so it's more of not so much being the, the vegetarian, just being vegetarian doesn't make you prone to hypoglycemic. It's the fact that if you just eat sugar for a meal or eat glucose for a meal or go way too long, right. or if vegetarian, but you can't put in enough fat in your diet, maybe olive oil, avocados, and enough, uh, yeah, nuts and seeds are vegetarian. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah all yeah, these yeah. things. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's some commonality there. Uh, maybe you can speak to some of the deleterious effects that prolonged sugar and prolonged insulin have uh, on their brain. So we've been talking a little bit, you know, we started off talking a little bit about brain fog and we're trying to understand what inflammation is. And, you know, one of the things we, you've mentioned is that the, you know, when you have elevated blood glucose or you have ele- elevated insulin, at least you're going to be activating um, the microglia. Can we also see changes in the blood brain barrier? Do we see changes? Are there areas in the brain that are particularly sensitive to excess, um, excess sugars and potentially accelerating the degeneration there? Yeah. So there's lots of different target sites for excess blood sugar and insulin. The first one is you know, are these, they're called GLUT4 receptors. The GLUT4 receptors are what allow glucose to get into the cell. Mm-hmm. So chronic blood sugar uh, spikes of glucose and insulin make these receptor sites inefficient. So one of the problems with that is the brain um, has a hard time getting glucose in its, in its, to its tissues and to its neurons to provide fuel for the brain. So that will start to lead to hypoglycemia actually in the brain where the brain just can't function and can't focus in, in things that it needs to do, whether it's focus concentration or memory recall. So these episodes of poor memory, poor brain function many times or this chronic or insulin resistance happening at this GLU24 receptor at the brain. Um, and we also know that insulin itself will trigger um, what are called tau phosphorylation. This is the mechanism where people build amyloid plaques that mm-hmm. associate with Alzheimer's. It just accentuates that response. Mm-hmm. We also know that when you have high degrees of insulin and glucose, you produce what are called glyc- glycated end products, meaning your glucose can't get into your tissues because you've had so much carbohydrate your whole life that you lose the efficiency of getting your insulin receptors to work to carry that glucose into your cells. This circulating glucose gets uh, oxidized by free radicals in your bloodstream. Then you create these things called glycated end products. And then the brain and this inflammatory pathway called the rage reaction, which is stands for receptors, uh, receptors for advanced glycated end products that gets active in the brain and cause significant, significant brain inflammation, which will then cause injury to surrounding neurons. The blood brain barrier does become permeable. And the blood-brain barrier is basically blood vessels. So chronic insulin surges turn on several inflammatory um, mechanisms that start to cause inflammation in blood vessels. So not only is the blood-brain barrier breaking down, the brain's getting inflamed, and the brain uh, doesn't have proper efficiency of receptor sites, insulin receptor sites, to get fuel to the brain. Um, You start to get risk for vascular disease of the brain. So the second type of dementia, uh, most common dementia is vascular dementia and chronic insulin surges promote that. So the two main types of dementia, 
which for number one is Alzheimer's disease, the second one being vascular dementia, are all promoted by chronic blood sugar insulin spikes. And even if you don't get to the point where you, you get such significant decline where you, don't, where you have dementia, where you can't remember friend, friend and family's names and you get lost all the time and you can't find your way home, there's going to be a toll on the brain. <laughs> Um, where you just may not perform. Like you may be in your industry and you may be great at what you do, but you can't do that anymore. Uh, you may love to read for hours and that's your passion, but now you can't do it anymore. So it doesn't always have to end up being dementia or disease name. Just the fact that there's chronic insulin and blood sugar spikes is going to have a devastating role in the brain. That's why it's so important to, uh, if you're listening to this, if you eat a meal, you have to see how you feel. The only thing that should happen after you eat a meal is you're no longer hungry. If you eat a meal and you get tired, that's a red flag. You've got some insulin spikes happening. And if you eat a meal and you feel normal again and you're energized, that's a red flag you're hypoglycemic. So the easiest way to determine if this inflammatory mechanism of the brain's happening with you is to just look at how you feel after you eat. And if you have the percentage of carbohydrates and proteins and fats that your body can metabolize and process, you should have no, no change in energy. If you, uh, after you eat, you should get tired. And if your blood sugar levels uh, are constantly dropping, you have to eat, that's a sign you're going too long without eating. I mean, you need to have some proteins and fats. So that's uh, a really important mechanism. I wrote a book, Why Is My Brain Working? I have a whole uh, couple chapters on these mechanisms that really explain these things. After I wrote my brain book, I created an online program called Save Your, Save Your Brain Program, where we teach people how to these concepts and we teach the six steps how to really improve your brain function. And one of the most important steps is this blood sugar regulating mechanism. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's essential. And I'll make sure, uh, by the way, that that's in the show notes for people to be able to check out. Um, cause I think that's, a, it's so important. And we, we just had, uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen, um, on the podcast and we were talking all about Alzheimer's. So just, you know, reinforcing everything that you just said, we were talking about amyloid precursor protein and the effect that insulin has on that. So if you have high insulin, so a, like a, APP is going to, you know, what you want is you want it to be cleaved at the alpha site. If it's cleaved at al the alpha site, then we don't have any amyloid plaques being laid down. But if you have a lot of insulin, that's going to be promoting this cleavage. I think it's at the beta and the gamma sites he was talking about. Um, I wanted to just kind of come back to the blood-brain barrier for a moment, because uh, you do talk about this in your, in your book, Why Is My Brain uh, Not Working? Is there, uh, maybe you can explain if there are ways that, if we are suspecting, so if someone's listening and like, okay, hot damn, yeah, I, I'm always, I always have the tea with the honey, I always have the, you know, is there a way that she can, or, you know, anyone who's listening test or, um, you know, are there any biomarkers that you would suggest following? Or I know that you talk about the, there's like a leaky, uh, leaky, uh, brain, blood brain barrier test, um, that you talk about in the book. Can, is that something that you would recommend if someone's sort of looking to see whether or not they're influencing their physiology through excess sugar consumption? You mean, so the biomarker for blood brain barrier breakdown? Uh, not the not a um, the biomarker for for a leaky blood brain barrier, but generally, if there are, are uh, you know pathological features, if we were to if we were to do a blood test, uh, would you yeah. look at you know high sensitivity C reactive sure. protein? Would you look at HBA one? Like, yeah. are there what would be some of the biomarkers right. that you right. like to follow? And yeah. I'd like you to talk about the leaky brain test that you talk about. Okay, later. sure. So the the, the blood sugar markers that we use are basically the ones that are used in routine, routine healthcare. So the first thing is, are you 
I mean, if you're, are you starting to head into pre-diabetes? So when you get a routine blood test, they, they usually measure fasting glucose. Yeah. And if your fasting glucose is creeping above 100 in the 100-115 range, um, you know, and these are suspected. If it gets above 115, then the guidelines are you, you definitely have insulin resistance. That yeah. once you see fasting glucose above 115, you, mm-hmm. you definitely know you're going to have these mechanisms take place. And then once you get into the diabetic range, 127 or higher, um, that's when you have some significant increased elevation of risk with that. And then uh, the classical marker, HABA1C or fructosamine, are used to look at uh, these end glycosylate, these glycosylated end products that really promote breakdown of the blood-brain barrier and brain inflammation. If those are elevated, then you're really significant risk for that. Those usually end up happening with uncontrolled blood sugar levels with diabetes. Um, Anything above 7.4 in those, the research shows has dramatic risk. If it's above nine, there's some serious risk factors for that. Oh man, I can't even, I, like 5.1, like 5.1 or 5.2 for the HbA1c. I'm like, we have a problem because that, that actually yeah. tracks out to about 100, a glucose yeah. level of about 100 uh, milligrams per deciliter. So yeah. Right. Just with, with this risk, risk studies done, when they find it above nine, it's really scary. Um, yeah. What, right. what risk you're at for stroke and renal failure and so forth. But yeah. You know, a lot of people do. If you go and test population, a lot of people have those levels. Mm-hmm. And then for the blood-brain barrier, the standard test is what's called S100B. And all the conventional laboratories run the test. And if S100B levels are high, it suggests that the blood-brain barrier may be breaking down. Mm-hmm. Um, there could be other reasons for S100B elevations, but that's one of the key things. Um, then there's labs um, that do actually measure things like blood-brain barrier protein antibodies, like Cyrix labs. And, and uh, those are ways you can determine if that's happening. In the book, you talk a lot about flavonoids and their role in dampening inflammation. Which ones specifically do you like if you're suspecting someone has, uh, you know, cro- they have chronic uh, glucose and insulin, like they're fasting insulin, their fasting glucose is, uh, you know, something that you determine to be awry. What are some of the flavonoids that you'd like to introduce into someone's protocol? Well, I think, uh, I mean, first you have to get the blood sugar under control. Flavonoids won't be able to compensate for that. You have enough. You're going to have to, so flavonoids, you know, dampen the inflammatory response. They help heal uh, tissues that are injured. And my favorite flavonoids are resveratrol, uh, turmeric, uh, pomegranate extract. I think they have a lot of good research behind them. Green tea extract is also phenomenal when it comes to brain, um, specifically for research published on brain and anti-inflammatory effects. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the, the most published ones and the ones that I like the ones that are most published would be um, green tea, turmeric, resveratrol, uh, and pomegranate extract. Mm-hmm. So and maybe, maybe I jumped the gun a little bit into supplementation, but what would be some of the strategies that you'd be looking for? Let's first, maybe I should have asked you first, like what, how would you like to lower a patient's uh, fasting insulin? So my cutoff is about 85 uh, milligrams per deciliter. I like to see that as my normal or uh, like under 90. What would be some of the interventions that you might look at from either a dietary perspective or lifestyle medicine interventions? So if you're getting tired after you eat, there's two main things you have to do to change it. If you increase your physical activity or wherever that is, as you increase your physical activity, that makes your GLU-2-4 transporter mechanisms more efficient. It helps you clear out insulin. So that's one thing. And the second thing is you have to cut down on uh, the degree of carbohydrates, starch, and sugar. Um, I mean, that's the basic the basic model. And if you just play with those two, they'll have the biggest effect. Um, if you if you move more, you will have more tolerance 
for carbohydrates and sugar and things. If you move less, if you're sedentary, you probably have no, no tolerance. So I know if you've maybe gone on vacation and just nothing but laying around, you know, your insulin receptor sites become inefficient. And then if you eat something, you're really, really tired. That's a yeah. sign of it happening. And it happens quickly. It also changes quickly. So uh, if you're noticing getting tired after meals and you just start to increase your physical activity, maybe do a 23 minute, I don't know, stationary bike or run or walk or something, you'll notice you won't be as tired after the same meal within a few days. And that's a sign that the insulin receptors are working. Uh, much more efficiently. And if you do that in combination with cutting down core sources of carbohydrates and starch and sugars, um, then you will be able to tell. And if you can figure out a balance between that, uh, those two factors, and, and notice you're not getting tired after you eat meals, that can be beneficial. You can also use supplements to help improve the insulin receptor site while you're doing that. Uh, berberine has a lot of new research now. Yes, yeah, so um, I was going to ask so you about berberine. Mm. A lot of comparative, uh, they've actually done in so many studies on berberine with clinical trials. Now it's gone to the stage where there's several meta analyses done. Mm-hmm. And all these meta analyses have shown a very positive effect of berberine yeah. um, and lowering blood sugar. So the evidence is absolutely there um, without doubt. Um, the, the, so it has the highest level of criteria for evidence uh, as grade A level evidence for impacting blood sugar levels. Yeah. It's a very cheap and inexpensive ways for a lot of people that can't afford medication <laughs> um, to really control their blood sugar. So it's, it's, it's being, there's a lot of research being done because in some developing countries where there's a high amounts of diabetes like India, um, they're trying to figure out what can we do because this population can't afford these meds. Right. Finding simple, cheap berberine works uh, effectively and in some studies even more effectively in lowering blood sugar levels and improving the insulin receptor sites. So berberine is probably one of the most powerful ones. Things like just um, inositol, vanadium, B vitamins have also been published. Right. Chromium, they're the typical things you use. A lot of times when you go to a health food store or or a main nutritional manufacturer will put all those things together in one product, just as the general like blood sugar stabilizing product. And usually you'll find vanadium, chromium, alpha lipoic acid, B vitamins um, in there. And then berberine is something you can take on the site. But also be careful with berberine because it does drop blood sugar levels. So if you're hypoglycemic and you take it, you're going to crash. Um, right. So the first, the first thing is like nutrition and movement, right? And, so, and I, I, yeah. I find that so as humans, we love to complicate things, right? We're like, well, which one? And is it resistance training? And is it hot? Is it hit? Is it spin class? Is it CrossFit? Is it, you know, it's like, just go for, if you don't know, just go for a walk. You know, like I was, I was going for, a, me and my partner, we walk every, I do my own workout in the morning and then we'll, you know, kind of midday toward, you know, after dinner, go for a walk. And it does all the things that you're talking about, right? It's like increase it. You know, you have, you're standing up, so you're not seated, seated at your desk. Legs are working, heart is working. You know, you're increasing your capacity for glucose disposal because the legs are, you know, kind of gobbling up all the glucose that's being, um, uh, yeah. you know, out in the bloodstream for, for that utilization. It's good for the, car- you know, cardiometabolic, like just go for a 20 minute walk. Right. And then of course you can start to add on from there with all the supplementation. And I, ap- yeah. I apologize for going to the flavonoids first. Like I was so excited because I know you talk about a lot of the botanicals, but we, you know, sometimes we have to get back to the foundational basics of nutrition and movement first, and then supplementing as the name suggests to supplement that, um, with what you're, yeah. Uh, what you're talking first, about. As far as exercise goes and blood sugar stability, the, the thing to remember also is there's, there's research in that. The first part of the research came out years ago where they said just, this, just a brisk walk for 20 minutes can have an impact on blood sugar. Yes, and it can have a significant impact on blood sugar that's statistically significant, but it's not 
clinically that relevant. So what they've actually found is, yeah, there, there is a degree of different types of exercise that have different impacts on blood sugar. And they have found that higher intensity exercises do have an impact on blood sugar. And one of the easiest things to do is, you know, now it's very trendy and popular, just things like a seven minute high intensity workout where you, mm-hmm. for seven minutes, you do as many push-ups you can for 30 seconds per minute and then do as many air squats and then you do as many of those types of things. So like a micro, you know, micro workout, like a right. little, like a little mini yeah, a little micro workout. So yeah, yeah. what they're finding is also is like if, you know, if going to the, getting into exercise routine involves you getting totally dressed, going somewhere, putting on something in this two hour ritual right, right. on is just waking up before you take a shower put on an app or one of these videos that have a seven minute workout that can have a significant impact on blood sugar stability. Mm-hmm. And then there's some patient and, and, you know, you basically work to your level of what's intense for you. So you're not doing with compared to anyone else. And if some people that really have blood sugar issues, they can, sometimes they notice energy levels are low, like in the afternoon, they'll do another quick seven minute workout. Yeah. And they do that for a couple of weeks. They can have traumatic changes, dramatic changes in their blood glucose levels um, so quickly. Yeah, that's something that uh, that's actually something that I give to. My, that's something I've I've told my partner to do because he sits on calls. So you and I are talking on a Zoom call right now. He talks on Zoom calls from nine in the morning to six, and yeah. if he's not careful, he could be sitting for that entire amount of time. So what yeah. I've had him do now is like shorten his hour calls to forty five minutes, and then you know he has a chance to like go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, and then he can he can punch out like a ten minute workout, and he can do that six seven times. Yeah. over the course of the day. And it's like, all of a sudden he's done an hour's work of worth of, worth of, you know, push-ups and burpees and oh, yeah. squats and all the kind of things you were mentioning. And, um, and it's super efficient. He doesn't have to drive anywhere. Like you were saying, there's no equipment. It's just calisthenics and it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, just a little quick question because um, you mentioned turmeric. Do you prefer turmeric or curcumin or is there any difference? For you? Really, the active curcuminoids is really we have the effect. So you just want to see a product with the highest amount of active curcuminoids. Okay, because I love Indian food, so I'm just looking for an excuse to have more in, yeah. more curries than. Uh... <laughs> I don't think I'll get enough curry bowls for what you, you're going to have to supplement. <laughs> <laughs> Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. All right, let's talk a little bit about circadian biology. So I want to get into a conversation around um, some of the detrimental effects that sleep has or lack thereof, sleep, a uh, lack of sleep has on the brain. Uh, and I'd like to get into sort of systemic, chronic, low-grade uh, stress as well. So let's start, let's start with sleep um, okay. in terms of the effect that it has on the brain. Some of the things that I have done and, yeah. you know, learned in my own research is it, you know, mm-hmm 
causes, again, like the microglial activation, like we were talking about, inferior fuel partitioning, you tend to want more crap, like you tend to want more carbohydrates, your motivation for working out, all that thing, all that sort of tanks. Um, but when we consider brain health in particular, um, what role does sleep have in inflammation in the brain and in cognitive ability and the ability to make you know, good decisions? I mean, for the most part, if you don't get enough sleep, your brain volume is going to change uh, over time. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. So sleep sleep has impacts on every part of the brain, every mechanism of the brain. The brain, uh, this brain is made of cells. Cells need to get into recovery state and and to be able to activate something called autophagy to get rid of debris, uh, mm-hmm. bad cells. So when you lose sleep, you lose your autophagy mechanisms. You can't get rid of debris in your brain that were clustered proteins, dead neurons. That all has to be taken care of. Um, there's changes in your brain metabolism. Your brain goes into different brain waves that are very restful in a recovery state for the brain. So just like in, just uh, like anything else, I mean, there has to be a state of rest. So um, if the brain doesn't, uh, if you don't have enough sleep, your brain will put will have its impact, you know, over time. Yeah. So you know, every now and then we all have issues where we don't sleep well, maybe one thing or another. But if it's a regular routine thing, like for example, someone has frequent night urination and they can't figure that out. So they're always waking up two or three or four times a night. That's going to have an impact on the brain. Um, some people, many, many people that are hypoglycemics, like we talked about, um, that crash in the afternoon, get shaky, lightheaded, everyone will have to eat to feel better. The majority of them are going to get into what's called nocturnal hypoglycemia at night where they wake up in the middle of the night because the blood sugar is too low. Right. Um, that's going to cause sleep disturbance. That's going to impact their brain. So uh, those are, you know, it's really important to, to look at those mechanisms. Um, most common reasons why people don't sleep well is a lot of times um, they have blood sugar issues like we talked about, mm-hmm. or they have frequent urination. It's a really big problem, especially once people get over age 40, pelvic muscles weaken, they get uh, men get prostate issues. Women uh, also get what's called overactive bladder. Men and women both get overactive bladder, which is unrelated to, pros- to the to the. And prostate. that changes in vasopressin, or is it is that unrelated to that? It's uh, it's a neurogenic mechanism where they're losing integration of their small smooth muscle control. Um, mm-hmm. There've been studies with things like beta-cytosterol that have helped. But what happens actually is when your pelvic floor muscles weaken, when you actually activate your pelvic floor muscles, you actually activate autonomics as well that then control your bladder tone so voluntary contraction of pelvic floor muscles there is a feedback that then modulates the smooth muscle diffuser uh, valve that then controls function so you know sometimes we just have people stop eating sodium right before bedtime because that'll also increase urination and then we'll have them do pelvic floor muscles male or female mm-hmm. that'll change the autonomic function over a period of time to go plasticine those pathways so they can sleep for other people that have to control their blood sugar levels. But yeah, I mean, for a lot of people that can't sleep, they know that sleep is important for the brain and their overall health. They just don't know how to get through the night. So um, those are important pathways to, to try of, to consider. One of the things I, you know, when we think about what makes like a robust, healthy brain is its ability to inhibit, right? So we want like the frontal lobe to inhibit midbrain. Mm-hmm. We want the uh, pontomedullary reticular formation to inhibit like lower, uh, you know, the IML or whatever. And when you don't sleep, I mean, I've, I mean, we've all done, we've all pulled all nighters, right? Like I went to, you know, in professional school, even in, in university, 
uh, for sure I have my share of those. But the next day, the things that would that would never bother me would just throw me over the edge. You know, you spoke to me differently or something like you, because my frontal lobe is just, just offline. Right. So I think when we think about brain, you know, when we think about healthy, you know, promoting healthy brain aging sleep, like you're saying, just has to be part um, of the, of the conversation because of, you know, the, one of the brain's primary roles is to inhibit sort of lower, uh, lower brain centers. So, um, yeah, I love what you're saying there. Um, let's let's talk about stress. Um, we know that stress essentially over time makes us stupid. Right? It, it, it decreases uh, cerebral volume. Um, there are, of course, particular areas of the brain that are exquisitely sensitive to you know bathing in glucocorticoids all the time. Um, can you address or break down for us how stress affects our neurophysiology? Yeah. So there. So the so overall stress is going to um, promote neurodegenerative pathways. But in particular, it's going to wreak its havoc on the hippocampus, which is the medial temporal lobe region of the brain, because the, and this is, by the way, this, this, this is the site where Alzheimer's disease develops. So cortisol elevations, chronic stress responses over a period of time, they tend to cause a greater toll on the whole brain, but more importantly, on the medial temporal lobe, the hippocampus pathways of the brain. And this is the area of your brain that's involved with your long-term memory. So your ability to recall facts, your ability to recall what you learned in school, your ability your to life. recall your yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and this is, uh, this is uh, the first target area of Alzheimer's disease. So you're constantly getting, you know, Alzheimer's moments where you just can't think of something, you can't remember a person's name, or can't remember something that happened, uh, and it's getting worse and worse for you, then this part of the brain is compromised. And uh, that's, that's one of the things that also have been measured with what are called circadian rhythms, which you brought up earlier. So the medial temporal lobe, uh, has a region called the hippocampus, and this is where chronic stress and cortisol impact first. And when this starts to get disrupted, you also lose the ability, in addition to having impairments of your declarative memory, is also the ability to control your circadian rhythm of cortisol release throughout the day. So that can also lead to sleep disorders and sleep problems. You kind of get a vicious cycle of that happening. And those are measured with, you know, people do saliva tests throughout the day. Uh, they measure cortisol levels in the morning, noon, and afternoon. And when that rhythm gets abnormal, um, then that's been shown in multiple studies now to be an early indicator for Alzheimer's disease development. And they can also look at patients that have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and look at these cortisol circadian rhythms and predict their um, decline in their um, mental status as they see the circadian rhythms get worse. So, you know, this, this part of the brain that is so important for us to control our rhythms so we have proper energy and sleep cycles and also so important for us to have declarative memory is so sensitive to stress responses and also lack of sleep. And these are the areas that tend to decay over time when we're stuck in the wrong you know, lifestyle pattern causing these vicious cycles to happen. Mm-hmm. And just, just for the listener, when we're talking about the circadian biology of cortisol, it sort of looks like a ski slope, right? So in the morning, it's at its peak, it should be at its highest amount uh, than it is all day long. And then there's like a stepwise attenuation over the day. So it almost looks like, you know, a hollowed out L. Um, so that's what, that's what uh, just in case they have never done a cortisol test or not, not familiar about what it should look like. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and usually the cortisol awakening response, we have to, when you're talking about doing those salivary tests, you have to like get the timing right, right? It's like 10 to 20 or like 30 minutes maximum after you wake up. Otherwise we start to see cortisol levels low. So you can start to get false, um, false readings um, on it as well. All right, let's talk a little bit about hormones. Uh, you mentioned before waking up overnight, um, you know, talking about uh, women as we age, we start to see that they're starting to wake up more. I wanted, I wanted to, in our pre-chat, I was saying to you, I want to talk about low T in low testosterone in men. I think that this is and I haven't had, we haven't had a, a robust conversation on this yet on the podcast. And I think that this is an endemic where we're seeing most men that I've tested, the amount of testosterone is, uh-huh. is abhorrent. And, um, uh-huh. you know, of course that means that your sperm, like the sperm cancer are nosediving, you know, the fertility of, uh, and the virility of, of the, of the male is going to be, uh, decreased as well. It's like some like warped version of like the handmaid's tale, right? Where like, we're soon going to see this, you know, obliteration of the human race if this continues to, uh, you know, go on when we talk about, you know, uh, reproduction, of course, like we're, we, it's see, it's the seed and it's the soil, right? You got to have the seed from the guy and the soil for the, for the ladies. So what, what is happening to the modern man and his testosterone levels? Well, we talk about epidemiological levels. I mean, they're going, they're, they're, they're lower than they're lowering and, and younger men um, are having so-called low testosterone syndromes than before. And, uh, you know, the question is why? Because, you know, the, the, the key thing is not like every single person should be on testosterone, every male should be on testosterone replacement therapy. More important question in a functional medicine model is like, why does that happen? Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you change that? Because if you go on testosterone, you can also have lots of other things that happen. And one of the most common things besides low testosterone that is out there is men have normal levels of testosterone, but their estrogen levels are too high. And that has an antagonizing effect on testosterone. And, and what's happening with those men is they're converting the testosterone to estrogen. There's an enzyme called aromatase that gets upregulated and they cause this conversion. So for those men, if they go on testosterone, they're actually going to immediately convert to estrogen. They're going to Just get, get more estrogen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they're going to actually get less uh, motivated. The, the, what happens with these men that are stuck in that pattern where their testosterone levels may be normal or even on the low end, but they're making high amounts of estrogen because they have this overactive aromatase pathway. And by the way, that happens from sedentary lifestyle insulin surges and clock inflammation. Um, when they go on testosterone, they may feel a boost and have a honeymoon phase for like a couple of weeks where they feel a lot more energy and a lot more vitality. And then as that testosterone will stay in the system and build up and this just has to be processed, it's going to really raise estrogen levels. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of those men, they go on testosterone gel. And then when you repeat their lab tests, not in the first two weeks, but let's say two months later, it looks like they were taking an estrogen cream. So that's one thing to be aware of. That's why it's so important to find an underlying mechanism. But the other thing is that men do actually um, un- have low testosterone unrelated to this conversion of estrogen. And the cells that produce testosterone are called lytic cells. And these lytic cells are very, very sensitive to oxidative stress and inflammation. And then when people or men are in a chronic inflammatory state, these cells cannot regenerate to the level that they need to for testosterone demands. Mm-hmm. So just being in a chronic state of inflammation is going to impair the regeneration and the ability to synthesize testosterone at adequate levels. So the biggest cause of chronic 
um, low testosterone is actually inflammation and oxidative stress because these lymph cells are so vulnerable to that. And if those oxidative stress inflammatory pathways are reduced, then it can prove, like for example, you'll see top athletes that overtrain come in with very low testosterone. And as soon as they get into a recovery phase and their inflammation goes down, the testosterone jumps back up. Yeah, yeah. And it happens pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's important to realize how, how important the connection is to inflammation of these testosterone systems because because they may not do anything for that. <laughs> and then they just go on testosterone replacement therapy and this whole mindset of like, oh, well, you're just older. You just don't make as much. No, that's not that's not how it works. You can, <laughs> I mean, that is to some degree how it works. So you can lose your feedback loop with LH. But that but just that means you've got to change the way you live, though. That just, that doesn't, that means getting up out of your chair and doing some of those air squats for yes. 10 minutes, you know, and yeah. Lots of things. Yeah. Um, and there, but there are people sometimes where they, they actually have so much inflammation and destruction to those cells, they may need to be on replacement. Right. So it depends, depends, you know, what the, the motive, the clinical goals are for the person, for the patient, um, the bias of the practitioner they see. Some practitioners will be feel every man needs to be in testosterone replacement therapy, even if the levels are normal. Right. Some people will go, why is that there? There'll be some patients that go, I don't want to have to take testosterone if I don't need to. Why do I have low testosterone? And yeah. It goes back to the question of chronic inflammation, oxidative stress. So, so those are all the, the main variables, but it, but it is common. Um, and uh, I think it's being mismanaged altogether with the healthcare and many people aren't looking for it either. I agree. And I think, you know, like you were saying, of course, everything exists on a continuum, right? So there's going to be, yep. you know, in, in my experience, probably 70 to 80% of low T can be improved or ameliorated with some of these lifestyle interventions that we've been talking about. I find the men that I've put on a ketogenic diet uh, respond incredibly well because we know that insulin, like you were saying, insulin increases that aromatase activity uh, from tea to from testosterone to, uh, to estradiol. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of the effects on the brain, um, in your book, you talk about testosterone being uh, affecting the dopamine and the acetylcholine receptors. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah. So, so the impact of testosterone on the brain is different for males or female brains. Yeah. But for male brains, testosterone has a very powerful impact on dopamine centers. And dopamine and testosterone have synergistic activity at the receptor site um, for areas of the brain that are involved with motivation and drive and focus and attention. So... Um, when testosterone levels go down, one of the most common symptoms is uh, symptoms of low dopamine. Uh, they just can't initiate. They can't follow through. They can't start anything. They have all the motive. They have all the desire. They just can't get that thing started, or they can't finish it. Finish something that they started. Mm. Um, you know, the fence that just started got painting and never finished. <laughs> it could be a low dopamine, low testosterone. Yeah. Um, we see it all the time. It's actually a red flag clinically because when we see male come in and they have low low testosterone, low dopamine, we know that they may not even follow through with their protocols right. not because they don't want to. They don't have the physiological ability to, yeah. to follow through. And that's where we have to get spouse involved and yeah. let them understand that. And uh, the low testosterone, low dopamine male is kind of stuck in a really bad spot because of this connection with the brain, because they, they, they have the desire and wanting to change things they just can't initiate. So um, physical activity, uh, getting insulin down, reducing inflammation, those things all raise dopamine. They also help raise testosterone. Mm-hmm. So, but when you have someone who's kind of been in a lifestyle under a lot of stress, they they kind of have become sedentary and their levels are drop or, 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 or dropping and they're inflamed and they can't activate their brain. It's really hard for them. Sometimes they do, do have to have a, 
a great spouse pull them into getting some care, getting some treatment, uh, and then making sure they get through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I work with spouses that bring their husbands in for, for just chronic depression or just not the same anymore, we find this mechanism. We have to let the spouse know they're you need they please not don't being think defiant. They're being, <laughs> not, not being not, defiant and not being disrespectful. Yeah. They just can't do it, and they're yeah. frustrated. They can't do it, and yeah. you, you got to get them past that hump where they get some of these levels back to in order so they can function again. So those are important important things. And the other thing is when you just go into testosterone replacement therapy, you don't regenerate the degree of lytic cells as you normally would on your own. So there's a point, for example, so like some people want to just go into testosterone and get out of that level. Well, that, that may have the counter, uh, counter effect because you go into testosterone, it goes into estrogen. Now you have less lytic cell potential and now you really can't get out of that vicious cycle. So it's important to really look at the underlying mechanisms first. Yeah. And I, and I'm always, uh, always a fan of endogenous testosterone uh, versus exogenous for the reasons that you said, like it can just look like they're on an estrogen cream. Um, If they're, if they're just, you know, taking, uh, taking an oral tea, oral tablet or something. Let's talk about testosterone in women. because we find the opposite in women. Like we see a lot of low T in the guys, we see high T or high testosterone, I, at least in my practice, I see a lot more women with excess testosterone as, it, and I, it, in my opinion, it is, res, it is because of this hyper consumption of glucose for many, many years. And we get this insulin resistance type of profile. Um, what do you, what do you see for uh, the, the way, well, let's talk about the way that testosterone plays out in women and how that is a distinguishing, how that is different from uh, how it plays out in, in men. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, yeah, I cover a lot of this in my brain break also. And, um, the key thing with testosterone in, um, females is really generated by insulin. And actually it's not just your practice. The epidemiological studies dated out there shows the number one common, uh, hormone imbalance in females or polycystic ovarian syndrome, high insulin, high testosterone. So it's, it's the most common without doubt, in all industrialized countries, especially in the U.S. That's basically the same vicious cycle, chronic inflammation, chronic insulin surges, lack of, lack of movement, sedentary lifestyle. And then what happens with insulin surges in females is they activate these 1720 lice pathways in the thickest cells of the ovaries, and it causes them to produce testosterone. And then when females produce testosterone, it has a completely different effect. It's not, I mean, they, they can have some anger and rage issues, but, but that's not common. What actually happens is their metabolism gets more inefficient as, as they get higher testosterone, they get more insulin resistance. Um, their the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone goes up. They get hair thinning, hair loss. It's one of the most common causes of hair thinning, hair loss in women is actually from insulin. It's not from hypothyroidism. Yeah, that's they the get super stuck testosterone, the, the DHT. That's our super testosterone. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, but you know, some tissues can't, some, the effect of raising DHT in some tissues is an adverse effect. It's not a beneficial effect. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think with women, you see just the different vicious cycle, their insulin levels go up, their testosterone levels go up, they get hair thin, they get hair loss, their metabolism slows down, they get further insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. The insulin resistance creates chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation causes brain inflammation. They get depression, they get mood disorders, they're all... It's this whole cascades play around and then they walk in the healthcare and then they get this polypharmacy game played with them, but they go into alternative medicine clinic and they try to think one single nutraceutical is going to fix it all and, or a handful of bags of supplements are going to fix it all. And it's just not that simple. 
Yeah. And I often find uh, for my ladies that have PCOS are often put on a statin, like as a prophylactic, because they have all this like altered lipid metabolism. Uh, they have, you know, elevated cardiovascular, um, well, at least they've been told they have, well, they do have an elevated cardiovascular uh, disease risk, but then you have, um, or they're put on the pill. That's the other thing they're put on, they're put on um, uh, oral contraceptive um, to help them regulate their period because they often don't have, they'll often have months where they're anovulatory or the cycle is longer than 35 days. And of course those can, I mean, both of those options maybe it's another podcast entirely, um, but can have some devastating um, effects to her fertility. Um, and uh, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, testosterone and, and its role in terms of lean muscle mass and, you know, one of the things statins have been shown unequivocally is to, is to decrease muscle mass, to increase muscle pain and weakness and wasting. Um, so, all right, let's, let's move into, uh, let's move into menopause and uh, perimenopause. Lots of my ladies that listen uh, to this podcast sort of fall in that, um, in that age range. And perimenopause is this sort of diabolical time where you sort of start off with, you know, it can start off with one issue where you start off maybe more estrogen dominant because your levels of, well, I should say your, your estrogen levels are high relative to your uh, progesterone levels, but then over time, it, it switches where, where your estrogen levels were once relatively high. As you have more um, you know, ovarian insufficiency, start, we start to see lower levels of, um, of estrogen. So walk us through how that can affect um, the female brain. What are some symptoms that she might be experiencing or that might clue her in to this, um, this flux in her, in her estrogen levels? Okay, thing with perimenopause is there's a loss of pituitary ovarian feedback loop. So what happens is normally in a, the normal menstrual cycle, the pituitary releases follicle stimulating hormone, which causes the release of the follicle, and then you know you get into mid-cycle, you get an LH surge, you ovulate, you then put out progesterone, and then what happens as we get older, as women get older, their feedback loop becomes less efficient, and then what will happen is FSH levels will have these. Um, less efficient effects on the follicles. And then we get these, what happens is there's spikes of estrogens that go up and down. And it's really spikes of estrogens going up and down that cause things like hot flushes and sweating, insomnia. And, you know, for most, for, for females, when, they, when we talk about perimenopause, some transition very efficiently through it and some do not. Mm -hmm. um, some will just go, hey, my cycles started getting longer and longer and then I just didn't have him. And it was really no big deal. I don't know why people complain about it. And then other women are like, I'm going to kill everyone in my family. <laughs> I, need to, I need help. So true. This Some is too people, much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so they can't adapt. And they're, they're the ones that have these fluctuating estradiol levels all over yeah. the place. And mm -hmm. uh, they're really in a bad place. And part of that is they don't have the capacitory mechanisms to take, to, to, to deal with it. So normally, you know, um, our adrenal glands also produce this estrogen. So if their adrenal glands are not as efficient physiologically, then they can't, they can't stop those to balance out for those fluctuations. So those fluctuations between FSH and estrogen are going to happen because of normal aging. If your adrenal, if the adrenal glands are working, then they can balance out these humps. So if the levels drop, they can quickly bring it up. So as soon as the levels spike, the, the adrenal glands kick in and bring it back up. So there's never really big dips. 
people that don't have that compulsory memory because they have huge tips and these huge tips are causing these vasomotor responses that are causing hot flushing and sweating and, and uh, also estrogen levels spiking up and down impact brain chemistry. So they can all types of mood disorders and depression and, and all the things that go with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's really important to really have healthy adrenal function before you transition into perimenopause, which goes back to, I guess, the theme of everything we talked about is blood sugar stability, make sure you're not hypoglycemic, make sure you're not insulin resistant. Um, those things can make a big difference to have the health of the adrenal glands so you can physiologically adapt if you're going into perimenopause. Now, if you're already in perimenopause and dealing with all this stuff, then you're just basically in crisis care and trying to um, control symptoms. Um, when people go on estrogen replacement therapy, their estrogen levels are just now stably, stable all the time and maybe even high, but they're stable all the time. So they don't have any more symptoms. And they sometimes miss, they confuse it as, oh, I must have been estrogen deficient because now I'm taking estrogen and now those symptoms are gone. So it was a deficiency issue, but it's not really a deficiency issue. It's a spiking, fluctuating issue. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And if so it'd be like the lack of the adrenals to compensate for. Yeah. So if your if your estrogens are always if you're taking it every day and you always have an X amount, there's no more spikes. Right. But then this is where you know some of the concerns come in for some susceptible, not all, but some susceptible women that have estrogen receptor sensitivity for certain tumors, or have different um, clotting receptor clotting uh, genetic uniquenesses where estrogen really promotes clotting. Because we know that there is, for some group of women, there's some increased risk for strokes and heart attacks and uh, um, embolisms and even some estrogen-sensitive cancers. So, um, you know, sometimes women are like, well, what do I do? Um, and then the, the thing is, is like if you have a person that's having the estrogen fluctuation levels and they have significant hot flashes because they're able to compensate and they go on estrogen replacement, they think now that they were estrogen deficient and they need to be on it forever. And then they stay on it. And then maybe they go, I don't really don't want to be on this anymore. I have risk factors in my family. I really, you know, don't like the way my fibrinogen levels are looking, whatever the case may be. Uh, and then when they go off, all of a sudden the levels now totally drop. And also when you're on estrogen for a long period of time, the estrogen receptor sites lose some sensitivities. They become resistant also. Yeah, so yeah. Now, now when they go off, it may take two to four weeks for these estrogen receptor sites to regenerate, to deal with not having those hormone levels. They're going to get all their perimenopause symptoms coming back and so now they're confused yeah yeah and now they're going oh my god i have to take estrogens i'm just it, it, deficient but when you look at their labs they're off the chart with estrogens and they may have some risk factors mm-hmm. so for them sometimes just getting through that phase where their levels get cleared out of their body and the receptor sites respond something they have to go through if they're wanting to transition out but then there's also research that shows you know estrogens are really important for brain health and uh, women that are on estrogen replacement therapy have greater neuroprotection and have greater bone density. So, you know, there isn't a simple answer. There's all these different factors involved. Ultimately at the end of the day, you have to look at the patient's uh, risk factors, um, their symptoms, their personal uh, belief system of how they want to manage their own health and to try to figure the right option for them. But uh, perimenopause, you know, those are the main issues. And what, how would you, introduce adrenal support there. So if you're 
you know, if you have the inability of the adrenals to have this compensatory um, output of estrogen because of chronic stress or chronic inflammation, what are some of the uh, strategies that you like to employ? And of course, I know it's it's individual for each each patient, yeah. but what are some general rules, some general guideposts that you like to employ when we're thinking about adrenals? Yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's not just the adrenals. Maybe it's like the HPA axis and like the sympathetic tone of the, of the of the person like maybe you can what are, what are some things you like there well if they're already in the perimenopause stage and they're it's almost too late to get any real effect from that um other than you still have to stabilize your blood sugar levels you still have to reduce the stress to get sleep those are the main those are the main lifestyle things so basically you have lifestyle factors you have dietary factors and then you have nutraceuticals you can use so with lifestyle factors they got to get proper sleep they have to reduce their stress levels to the point that it's not taxing their soul their spirit their mind mm. and then um for, for and they have to get some degree of physical activity or exercise to reduce their stress not necessarily not necessarily overtrain those are things that help support the adrenal glands and recover, factor. And recover. No one yeah, recovers. Recover. No one, like you were saying, the professional athletes, like we will go to, you know, a CrossFit five days a week, especially like the type of women that I, I tend to attract the same woman that I am, which is like type A overachiever, nerds out on everything, no rest. And then when you don't recover, when you don't give yourself, cause that's where all the gains are, right? You work out for, you know, four days a week, but if you don't give yourself that fifth day or that sixth day to like, just actually reap those gains, like nothing you're always inflamed, always inflamed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then besides lifestyle, uh, their diet has to just be, you know, really high in healthy. I mean, it's basically a healthy diet and nutraceuticals. There's lots of different botanicals out there. Things called adaptogens, Rodalia, uh, ashwagandha, things people can sometimes do to support their adrenal glands. What does a healthy diet mean to you? What does that mean to you? Real food, not processed food. Mm-hmm. So healthy diet today, just basically that's what it means. Like real vegetables, real food has been processed. There's not a bunch of chemicals added to it. It doesn't come from a bag or box. Um, that's just that's Like simple. shop the perimeter of the aisles, basically. Don't go up and down the aisle in the grocery yeah. store. Yeah. I mean, before you get into like, do you, should you be vegetarian? Should you do keto? Should you do all that? You just have real food. Mm. Like, yeah. Any, in terms of nutraceuticals, would you ever, um, that can help augment brain function in, in women or men, would you, would you want to target like the, you know, acetylcholine, like we were saying, maybe GABA for someone who uh, is very anxious or serotonin to, to help with some yeah. of the mood disorders and cognitive thinking? Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, there, you, you can do them. Um, and my brain book-wise, my brain working, I have a chapter for each one of those neurotransmitters, acetylcholine, dopamine, GABA, and uh, serotonin. And I just reviewed the literature of all the things that have ever been shown to raise those levels. Lots of natural compounds have been shown to raise those levels. Um, it's kind of not the... It depends on what your clinical goals are. If your goals are to improve your memory, focus, and concentration, you can do things to raise your acetylcholine. If you have uh, a tendency to anxiety and nervousness, there's some natural compounds that can help activate GABA receptors to kind of take the edge off, you know? Um, and then same thing with dopamine and serotonin, but ultimately, um, in the way, the way we teach people these concepts in my save your brain online course and in the why is my brain working is that's not the most efficient place to start. The most efficient place to start is 
get proper fuel to the brain, get proper oxygen, meaning proper circulation and blood flow to your brain. Make sure you get uh, your blood sugar levels under control. Make sure those things are all in order before you start going into the neurotransmitter route. Because if you go into the neurotransmitter route first with different nutraceuticals and botanicals, you really don't get much of a clinical effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how we can build a healthy brain. We've been sort of talking about all the different uh, you know, catastrophic um, events that can happen from neuroinflammation, from brain fog, from chronic stress, sleep deprivation, blood glucose levels out of whack. In your book, you talk about um, you talk about uh, ways that we can build uh, a healthy brain. And my one of my dear friends, um, Jim Quick, is a is a brain coach, and he talks about the way that you build out neurons is through nutrition and, and novelty. And you talk about this very similarly. You talk about having it's novelty. Problem. Novelty meaning like stimulation or things that oh, are, yeah, things that are yeah, new yeah, to the brain. Yeah. And, right. and you talk about that as well. You talk about stimulation, you talk about oxygenation to the brain, you talk about glucose levels, which we've been talking about a lot. I want to I wanna talk uh, touch on oxygenation because I just because you're breathing doesn't mean that your brain is getting oxygen. And I would notice this. It was such an alarming trend. I would typically, um, I, I used to have a brick and mortar practice. Now my practice is mainly online, but um, the, we would take new patients, uh, somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning. So we'd have sort of this rush of, you know, patients coming in for their care between like seven and nine and then, you know, nine, 10, 11 o'clock new patients, we take them. And we would, we would just pop on an oximeter for them while we were doing HRV or some other test. And these are like 30 or 40 year olds. That was sort of the demographic of the, of the patient, of the patient base that I had, maybe, maybe 50. And they would have at 10 in the morning, O2 levels, O2 saturation levels of like 94%, which is, which is low for, for 10 in the morning. So let, let's, let's talk about, first of all, why that's problematic. But first I want to talk about why, you know, what the role of oxygen, um, how that, what that is in the brain and, um, what are some of the confounding variables that can influence the ability for oxygen to permeate and get into uh, the brain? Sure. I mean, pulse oxygen 94, you got to roll out pulmonary issues, cardiovascular issues and, and asthma and all those things. That's not, that's not anywhere close to healthy or normal. Yeah. It's definitely red, red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the pulse ox levels, I mean, pulse ox is just one way of looking at a calculation of, of different lights going through red blood cells that are actually uncongenated and you get a number. It's not necessarily, um, you know, it's one way to look at this, but also just, just temperature, just cold hands and cold feet. It's a good way of looking at circulation, which may not always reflect the pulse ox because you could have someone has a pulse oximeter reading of 98, 99%, but their hands and feet are freezing and cold. Right. So the most common things with, with getting oxygen to the brain, blood is really, um, uh, first of all, blood pressure. Um, people that have very low blood pressure have what's called low perfusion, and perfusion is the ability to push uh, oxygen into your tissues. So, you know, a lot of people have really poor brain endurance and brain function because their blood pressures are just like, are just too low. So mm-hmm. let's say 
systolically below 100 or diastolically you know below 70 like 90 over 60 or something like that that's really going to impact perfusion cause poor poor circulation in hand feed cold hands yep. um poor nail beds wet, wet nail beds and it's also mean less oxygen to the brain so for some people that come in in my practice and we're really looking at how to improve the brain function we may just start with looking at strategies to improve their blood pressure and why their blood pressure is so low mm-hmm. um, so that's another line of oxygenation anemia Always has to be rolled out. You got to make we have to make sure that you have to do a CBC to make sure there's no underlying anemia. Of course, there's lots of different causes for anemia, but things like anemia and poor circulation, poor blood pressure, are, are really important mechanisms that decrease oxygen delivery to the brain, but also decrease blood perfusion into the brain. Um, especially when you look at blood pressure and circulation, and and blood is really where it carries all these nutrients. So if you have someone who's got really poor perfusion, really cold hands and feet, really low blood pressure, even if they're taking lots of nutraceuticals and their blood is filled with all these different vitamins and minerals and things to support the brain and flavonoids, they can't get into the brain, can't get pushed into cells. There's no effect. Right. So um, so when it comes to the field of oxygenation, perfusion, oxygenation, those things are all really, really important. And then some people have things like uh, asthma and they have pulse oxygen that are really low and it's environmental and you have to remove, they find out, you do some testing and you find that they're sensitive to the different uh, um, trees in their neighborhood and they can't breathe well. And they're always right. uh, not able, they're getting bronchoconstriction. So they do have that low pulse ox. So in, in order to change your brain function, you have to deal with the histamine response of their exposures and, you know, so that's that's the key thing with uh, looking at a physiological aspect of, of brain and as it relates to oxygen. Are there ways that you like to improve um, oxygenation? Well, uh, so if there's an underlying mechanism, like it is um, bronchoconstriction, like asthma, that, that would be one approach. If it was low blood pressure, that could be a different approach. They just have like, you know, there's no real cause and their circulation's just always been bad. Um, Physical, like high intensity exercises can raise uh, endothelial uh, and uh, endothelial nitric oxide levels, which can help with circulation and blood flow. There are nutraceuticals that can help aid with blood flow um, and circulation. Beet root extract has been shown to raise levels, um, and postatine is very good to raise um, uh, endothelial nitric oxide levels to help with circulation and blood flow. So it's a nice combination of things, and you know. Every, everyone's unique. There's some people you struggle forever to try to figure out how to get their um, asthma to control. And it's, it's not like a quick thing. You have to work through different factors for other people that have low blood pressure. You can try all these different strategies to get the blood pressure back up, but <laughs> they don't respond as well. So right. as you know, real practice is different, you know? And I think this is the frustration. Like this is how it really works. So people that um, are trying to find like the one protocol thing to do to change the brain, like good luck. And then at the same time, and also let me know. And then also uh, when you, you know, and then some patients don't have the motivation and drive to kind of address all those issues. So that's another factor. Mm. There's also the issue of practitioners. Some, a lot of practitioners, how do you say it? Just suck. They, they want to, they, they're the same mind. They want to just give someone a simple protocol or blame everything in the brain, red heavy metals, or mm-hmm. they don't go through the detailed steps. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's a combination of all those factors that really impact a clinical outcome. Right. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. I often find, um, uh, I want to be uh, very 
careful, but I, you know, in terms of respecting all my colleagues, but sometimes you'll find like someone who is just all in for Lyme, like everything is, yeah. you know, is Lyme. It's because they've had either a personal experience, like someone in their family, and then they figured yeah. out something that really worked well for them. And then that becomes the underlying thing for everyone. Right. Or like you were saying, like there's some cookie cutter thing that, um, that you've developed and then you just sort of give it out to everyone, irrespective of genetics, irrespective of the patient's goals, irrespective of, uh, you know, what, what's actually going on. It's just, they sort of want to, you know, churn them in and churn them out. That's, that's very true as well. Um, all right. I wanted to, uh, maybe talk about one of, one of my favorite supplements, um, and there's, uh, I know that you have a lot of a lot of thoughts on fatty acids. So when we think about therapeutic interventions for the brain, um, and when we think about this in the context of inflammation, bringing omega threes into the mix is often a good idea, particularly when we're trying to balance out the amount of omega sixes that we take in versus uh, the amount of omega threes. And of course. The, you know, the omega-3s, of course, have, you know, we have EPAs and DHAs. So let, can we talk a little bit about fatty acids, what your views are on them, and then how, when is it appropriate to give somebody a supplement or a fatty acid um, uh, concentration that has higher uh, EPA, and when is it appropriate for them to have higher uh, DHA? Sure. Yeah, I talk a lot about this in my book. And uh, the key thing is, um, so fish oils we know are really critical and really important. Fish oils have an EPA component or a DHA component, and uh, they both have they both have um, similar effects in reducing inflammation. EPA seems to have a better anti-inflammatory effect, and DHA has a, seems to have a better effect on making cell membranes in the brain more flexible and more fluid, and uh, an impact on neurodegenerative um, neurosynaptic pathways. So. Um, you know, for some people where they don't have a lot of inflammation, you're just trying to improve their brain fluidity and flexibility, taking something with higher DHA could be a good strategy. So for example, kids that are on a healthy anti-inflammatory diet, but they're, you really want to, um, improve their fatty acid content for the brain using a high DHA supplement, maybe a better strategy. And then you might have someone who just has chronic brain inflammation and body inflammation and just taking a regular fish oil that has EPA or high amounts of EPA could be useful. The problem with DHA um, is that it's expensive. So when you look at supplements that are higher in DHA, they're not cheap. Yeah. Um, so for a lot of people, just, just using a basic fish oil that has both is fine too. It just depends on the situation. And most people could probably get away with just a regular fish oil that has both EPA and DHA. If you're really dealing, like my practice, if you're really dealing with um, a person who's had, had severe brain injury or dealing with a child with a developmental disorder, we're really trying to go after the brain very aggressively. We'll use a higher DHA and, and just deal with the cost um, because we're really just trying to get the fatty acids of the brain. But trying to use DHA in high amounts when there's lots of inflammation can be um, not as a clinically efficient and effective because you really have to get that inflammation down and use that DHA for the, mm -hmm. for the fat solubility mechanisms of the brain. And uh, thoughts on ALA, alpha linoleic acid? Yeah, alpha linoleic acid. I mean, you can do the, you know, all the different variations of different fatty acids, uh, a diverse source of fatty acids, whether it's blackcurrant or, or flaxseed or 
um, fish oils or EPA, DHA, they're important. For some people, just mix mix them all up. I mean, there's some patients out there that are fat phobic. They just don't eat any fat. Um, and they just really, they get all types of um, metabolic imbalances. They, the prostaglandin levels get thrown off. Fatty acids get converted to what are called prostaglandins. Prostaglandins, by the way, are the main mechanism to control pelvic cramping. So big, a big clue that a person, female may have uh, prostaglandin essential fatty acid imbalances if they have chronic uh, menstrual cramping. Hmm. Um, that whole pathway is prostaglandin-based. So for them, sometimes fish oils don't do anything. They have to actually go into evening primrose oil or black currant seed oil um, to make a big difference with flaxseed oil or combination of olive oil and all these other things. We just know that, um, you know, fried foods are not the way to go. We need the, the healthier oils. Right. Uh, so a combination of different oils would be ideal. Like for my own family and own daughter, we try to get olive oil, avocado oil, flaxseed oil, black currant oil, give a diversity of different healthy fatty acids for just general prostaglandin function and fatty acids. And when we think when we think about the brain, of course, the way that I like to describe it is it's just like a big blob of fat with like wires in it, right? So of course we need, I mean, that's very overly simplistic, but when you're talking to a patient, when I'm trying to speak to them about the value of fats, because we have, there is, there still persists this fear around fats and this fear mm-hmm. around cholesterol levels, um, and that these things are going to trigger, you know, you're going to get atherogenic placking and MIs. And, and, um, and of course, that, that's true in, in, in a certain, there are certain people with genetic predispositions where they do have very poor lipid metabolism, particularly in the saturated fat um, realm. But it is so important for, like, I attribute my skin and my hair and my nails to olive oil, Brazil nuts, and the salmon that I eat. And it's because yeah. I have a lot of fat um, uh, in my diet. And of course, that's just an N of one, right? So that's just me. But I do find that the more I in, I can inch up a woman's consumption of fat, um, the better she typically feels. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, menstrual pain, uh, particularly like middle smirch when I when they when they sort of have that feeling of pain around ovulation, um, and then in the luteal phase leading up to uh, leading up to their period, that sort of inflammatory like where IBS and you know sort of migraines and depression and moodiness tend to uh, uh, tend to get aggravated. More fat usually in that time, I have found um, with the women that I work with to be uh, to help a lot. So, well, I just, you know, I just want to tell you, it's been, it's been a delight uh, speaking to you. I said this to you in the pre-chat, you have more letters after your name than I think I have in my entire (laughs) name in total. Um, You're so well-researched, so well-known in the healthcare uh, world. So I want to thank you uh, for your time and, um, and, you know, the cognitive flexibility, uh, even that you've shown in in our discussion uh, and your approach to care has been, has been lovely to, uh, to experience. I I wanted to thank you. I'll make sure that all of the links that we've been talking about in terms of your program and your book are, are, um, uh, are in the show notes for our listeners as well. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care.
In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary health care provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 